here we are. For some reason, when we end up pinch-hitting with worship, I'm always on to preach that Sunday. So I'm just going to use this mic rather than trying to put the earpiece and everything on while we're up here. But, <coughs> excuse me, that last song, there's one phrase in there that says, if God is for us. And it's kind of where I want us to end up today, because today we're starting off... Um, our series, we're going to have a series going through the book of James. I don't know about you guys, I love the book of James. James is so packed full of, of nuggets of wisdom, is he, the short little wisdom pieces. They're, they're just, there's so much, so much here that affects our everyday life, practical things that we can use for our lives today. So today um, we're going to look at we're going to cover the first eighteen verses, kind of give an overview because I think this part of it um, kind of sets the tone for the rest of the book, if you will. Um, but just to take a st- take a step back from what you know about James, the, the book of James, take a step back from it a minute, and let's think about who wrote the book of James. So there's there's three Jameses that are mentioned in the Bible. There were two disciples that were named James, um, James, the brother of John. Um, he would have been martyred, I think it was in Acts 12, maybe, um, early in Acts, like AD 42, James, he, would, he would have been murdered. And then there also was James, the son of Alphaeus, and then James, the brother of Jesus. And James, interesting enough, James, the brother of Jesus, is, is mentioned first, he, he shows up by name in, in Matthew 13, but before that, um, James's fam- or Jesus' family shows up when Jesus is teaching and preaching, and they basically tell him he should stop, um, whatever. They're very skeptical of Jesus. And even in Matthew 13.55, Jesus is preaching, and this is in Nazareth, and, J- and the people come up to to, uh, to Jesus, or they're talking about Jesus, and they say, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, aren't they all here with us? And through, throughout Jesus's ministry, James and Jesus's family, besides Mary, for sure, for sure James and his brothers are very skeptical of Jesus' teaching. Um, John 7, here, here was the example that I was looking for. John 7 says, Jesus' brothers mocked him. This is like six months before he's actually crucified. So they've seen Jesus' ministry, they've seen him teach, they've listened to him teach, they've seen his miracles, and yet this is it's their half-brother, Right? So they're, they're, they share, have the same mother, and so they're very skeptical of Jesus's and Jesus and his teaching. But then something happens after the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 would tell us that Jesus appeared after, after he rose from the dead, he appeared to 120 people, and then it specifically mentions James. He mentions James and then the other apostles and all these other people. But in that moment, or, or somewhere in that time, after the resurrection of Jesus, something happened in James where he switched 
from this place of being a guy who knew about Jesus. So think about that. James grew up in the same household as Jesus. He ate dinner with Jesus. He probably played games with Jesus. He listened to Jesus teach in his two years, three years of ministry. He watched Jesus' miracles. He knew all these things about Jesus. But did he know Jesus? And there's this big shift that happens. And it's so easy for us in our churches, in our world today, our churches, I think, have this, or there's this potential of knowing all this stuff about Jesus. For sure, if we've grown up in a Christian home, we know all about Jesus. But the question is, do you truly know Jesus? And James writes his book here, and he's basically saying, so if you truly know Jesus then it is going to drastically change how you live your life. James is full of this. It's it's gotten a lot of criticism because it works. There's a lot of works in James. And James's point is that you cannot separate your faith from your works. You can't stand over here on this one side and say, oh, I believe all of this, but my life has not changed. Your life needs to reflect what the words that we speak. That's what James is driving after in, in James. But notice how James starts his epistle. This is in verse 1. He says, James, not a brother of Jesus. You know, do you, we, we like to name drop. You know, if we know someone really important, maybe this is just me, maybe you guys don't do this, but if you know someone really important, you try to slip it in every now and again. Let people know, hey, I know this guy here. You know, Whatever. But notice James. He doesn't say, I am a brother of Jesus. He says, I am a servant. And other translations use the word slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Something has drastically shifted from knowing about Jesus to knowing Jesus. James is no longer about James. James is about his Lord and his Savior, Jesus Christ. He recognizes who Jesus is, and it has drastically changed his life. And how James lived after he came to know Jesus as his Savior, after the resurrection, in the first part of of, of Acts, James shows up, he's in the upper room, he's one of the 120 who's in prayer. And the Holy Spirit comes, and he ends up being a leader, probably the first leader of the church in Jerusalem. And in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, James is the leader of the Jerusalem Council. So something has drastically shifted in his life. He is no longer living for himself. His life, he's living out the things that he says he believes. It has drastically changed him from the inside out. And history would tell us that I mean, obviously, they faced a lot of persecution. James ended up being taken up to the top of the Temple Mount. And either he was stoned up on top or he was thrown off the wall. But he was killed in probably AD 62. And so this letter that James is writing to the believers who have been scattered through, probably in Acts chapter 8, where right after Stephen's stoning, persecution was intense. And it says that the believers were scattered all over the country. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem, but the believers were scattered all across the world. And these are the people that James is now writing to. 
And this is very likely the first letter that is written to these churches. So think, think about that and how it reflects on what these people, these, these are the churches knew, and now they've been scattered. They've faced all kinds of persecution. They've had people who've been killed from their churches. They've been scattered, and now they need to start a new life in a new city all, all across the countryside in all different parts of their world. That's where they've been scattered. And it says, that's who James, the Jews, the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Those are the people that he's writing to. These are Jewish believers. They've been scattered due to persecution from religious, believers, religious leaders, but also from Roman authority. After Stephen's stoning, they scattered. And these are the people that he's writing to. And his letter here is not written so much as an epistle, but more as a practical things. Obviously, he, I think he's addressing things that the church is beginning to face and how they should then live through that, how their life should be changing through that. When you read the whole book of James, and I'd encourage you to do it I, or, or listen to it. Um, if I've got some free time, I, the last week here, I was just, I'd listen to the book of James, just start to finish. It only takes 15 to 20 minutes. Listen to it or read it, the whole thing together. It's really, really powerful. But there's almost, almost this punch in the gut. That's, I think, one commentator described. is like, James gives you like a punch in the gut. He's like, wake up. All these, these things that he tells you to do, don't do this, don't do that. It's, it's this wake-up call to this, this young church. I don't know if you guys... Um, I think there's a term that's used in baseball. So there's a guy that has a, a rookie season. His rookie season, he's good. And then he hits the sophomore slump. The second season, they come out and struggle because pitchers learn how to adapt to them. All, all this stuff. And I wonder if that's not a little bit what the church faced. So right at the outset in Acts 2 there, the church is, is new. And they're, they're so excited. And things are... Things are um, I don't know if I want to say going well, but there's this passion in this fire, then all of a sudden they're scattered. And things start to look a little bit different. And things get really, really hard. And trouble and conflict approaches or hits them from all sides. And so James, in verses 2 to 18, then James talks about trials, testings, and temptations. And that's kind of the theme when you read through the rest of the book of James um, when he talks about partiality, he talks about the t- our tongues, do our, um, how, do, how do we treat others, how do our works line up with what we say our faith is. All of these things are these, these trials and testings and temptations that we face in life. And so he's, he's kind of setting the framework for that theme, I think, here in, these, in this very first part, because he jumps right into this idea of trials and testings and temptations that we face. And I think the trials and the temptations can be the same thing at times. And the idea is every trial that we face, and you will face trials. I don't think I have to tell you that, right? Every trial that we face is meant to to. It is to be turned to something bigger, to, to, for us to step back and see the bigger picture. When we, 
when we face trials, we're to step back, and when we can see the bigger picture and trust, maybe not see the bigger picture, but trust God that there is a bigger picture, it changes how we then approach and view our trials. So let's just look at a couple of things I want um, about our trials and how we respond to trials. So the first thing I see, and I'm not going to take the time to read this. They're very familiar verses um, here. Verses 2 to 4 is what I'm focusing on right now. But when he talks about trials, there's something that trials are meant to produce. And one of those things is that trials are meant to produce spiritual maturity in our lives. Spiritual maturity, I think, is something that we all strive for. It's something that we all want. But maybe we don't like the way that God takes us to get us there. That can be a totally different thing. But trials are meant to produce maturity. And then he he starts that piece out by saying, count it all joy when you face trials. If there ever is a verse that I don't like, it might be that one. How do you, what does it mean to count it all joy when you face trials? Of various kinds, it says. So let me just really quickly say this. Joy does not equate with happiness. Joy and happiness are not the same thing. Happiness is a feeling or an emotion that you're... Yeah, you know what it means to be happy, right? But joy should be... Joy is something that is much... Is much, much deeper than that. I don't think... So let's just use an example. You have a flat tire beside the road. Is that a trial? That's a very simple, practical trial, but it's a trial. That's a hard thing you're going through. Does that mean you should be out standing beside the road with a smile on your face, dancing in the street? Oh, yeah, I love it. This is awesome. Seriously. Come on. I mean, there's not a chance. There's, there's no way. It doesn't mean that we feel happy. There's this... Adventures and Odyssey that I thought of right away. If you, your children know Adventures and Odyssey, there's this one that's going through all kinds of hard things, and the girl, her, her statement is, oh, count it all joy, and finally it's like, count it all joy, count it all joy. You know, through gritted teeth, it's like, oh, I need to count it all joy. Ah, that's not what God, that's not what he's driving at here, but joy that he's driving at here is a state of being. It's a settled contentment deep in our hearts, a sense of peace that comes from Craig Craig Blomberg. It's being at rest, being at peace in our innermost being in spite of what our outer circumstances may be. And that doesn't just happen, but that's the joy that he's talking about when he talks about our trials and trials come in all shapes. They come in all sizes. They come in for different people, they're, they're different for different people, different seasons of life, they're always different. And notice that he says, when you meet trials, not if, when. So when you think about that, some, some people, I've heard it, I've heard it say, you've either, you're, you're either going into a trial, you're in a trial, or you just come out of one. Now you think about the person beside you, and when we think about, so that person is either in a trial, just gone through a trial, 
or just going into a trial, shouldn't that give us a whole lot of more, much more grace for each other? Because trials come and they will be a part of our life. There is, it's not an if, it's simply a matter of when. And the point that James is making also is we have a choice with how we're going to respond to the trial. So they're going to come. He says we're supposed to have joy, but we have a choice. We, can, we need to make a choice. And if you're anything like me, your first reaction to a trial is to be angry, to get mad, or we come, become despondent. It's like, ah, oh, poor me. You know, we, we can so quickly become victims, seeing ourselves as the victims. And then when we do that, when that happens, or we get angry that we're going through this trial, what we tend to do is shift the blame for what we're going through. We project it onto people. And sometimes we even project it onto God. God is the one who gets the, the brunt of our anger. And I think that's something that is, it's really easy for us to do, for sure as, as, as Christians who live in a free country, we can get together freely, we're affluent, and I th- I'm afraid that often deep down inside of us, we think we deserve a life that is pretty easy. And then when it gets hard, we shift blame. We, we, we blame people and we even end up blaming God. So we, but we have a choice. The other choice, that, the option that we have, is that we can step back. And even when we can't see the bigger picture, we can trust that God is working a bigger picture. He's working something in our lives. He's working something in your life, in my life, that I can't yet see. And when we do that, think of what the, the people in Hebrews 11 and the disciples their response when they were persecuted, he said they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. There's no anger in that. There's no victim in that. There's no blaming anyone else. That is taking that approach of stepping back and saying God is working something much bigger that I can't yet see, and it's leading us to somewhere. James uses the word, it leads us, produces steadfastness. That simply means we have endurance. They help us to endure, and then it leads to perfection or spiritual maturity once it has reached its fullness. So our trials are meant to lead us to a place of maturity, to produce maturity. And the second thing that trials should do is lead us to a place of prayer. Lead us to prayer where we learn and recognize that we can't walk through this on our own. We don't know what the next step to take is. And so we come to Jesus and we ask him. James talks about wisdom in chapter 5. And I think part of, or in verse 5, and then he talks about it more in chapter 3, I believe it is. What, what wisdom is, he dives into it a little bit deeper. But wisdom as I want us to think about it today, is the art of the, the ability to take the things that you know, the truth that you know, and then actually make an application to your life. And think about that in the terms of your trials. 
So when I'm going through or you're going through a really difficult, dark trial in the moment, and you have no idea what the next step to take is, what does he tell us to do? The wisdom to know what the next step is, what the next right thing to do is. He says, ask. Just ask God. When he talks, when you need wisdom to know the next step, ask God. And he says, God's going to give it to you generously. He's not going to say, well, it's about time you showed up and asked. He's not like we are. He's, he's a generous God who loves to give. And all he says is just come and ask me. And he'll give us the wisdom that we need. So I'm going to skip over, skip over a couple of things there. Then he talks about when we ask, we need to ask not with doubting, believing that God will give. When we ask, just hang your hat on this. When you ask God for wisdom, he says, God will give it. You can hang your hat. You can bank on it. It's going to have God will give you the wisdom. And the double-mindedness that he talks about there, along with the doubt, means we can't come into it with this kind of divided loyalty. When, we, when, we live our, when we live, we're living our Christian life as I come to church and I put on my game face, in other words, I, I, I give, this, give this appearance in, or wear this mask that shows, oh, I've got life together. Life's falling apart. Can we just be real enough with each other, with God, to recognize that we're all in the trials, we're all in the hard times, we all go through them, and we're all in it together? There's no need to be double-minded, be two-faced in any part of it. And he teaches us to endure. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast, who endures under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. We don't have time to get into, um, right after that, he talks about the, t- the temptations. So trials, like I said, I think trials can also be temptations. But here's, the, I, think, I think what I was trying to say earlier with this, when we're going through trials and we, we become a victim, we play the victim, and we begin to blame God, that shows up here again when we're tempted. So when we're given a test... So an example that James uses is this um, idea of partiality. So <clears throat> I don't know what's a good example of someone that we would all know, all look up to, would walk through the doors of our church. I, 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 I want to say LeBron James, but that's a terrible example. But someone who we would all be like, oh, wow. And then in walks someone, tattered rags, Maybe he smells. Maybe he's a little obnoxious. I, I don't, whatever it may be. So he, there's a test. God's, so the, the test is, like, how, how will we treat these people? Is there a difference? And then the, the temptation end is there's something deep within us, deep inside all of us, if we're honest, that would show, immediately show favor to the guy that we all know the famous guy who's rich, who has 
something that he can give back to us. There's, there's something deep within us. And that's when he talks about temptation here. He says temptation, it's, it's enticement, it's luring. It comes from deep within ourselves. Don't blame God for the temptation that you're in, the temptation that you're facing. But it comes from this thing deep inside myself. And then what do I do with it? What do we do with that temptation? Our own desires are what lead us, or are that, that driving force into that temptation. And we would, there's, there's a piece of us that would like to shift blame and, or justify ourselves or maybe blame God for what, what's going on in our lives, for when we slip and when we fall into temptation. But notice how he comes then into verses 16, 17, and 18. There's this, there's this kind of this, uh, this shift that happens, and that's why I referred to that song that we sang, If God is for us. He says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Don't be deceived. God is not the one who is tempting you because God, the only thing that comes from God is the exact opposite of our own evil desires. He says, God, what comes out of God is every good and perfect gift is what comes from God. There is no shadow of turning. There is no change in him. He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his, creature, of his creatures. So trials lead us to maturity. Trials lead us to prayer. But then trials also lead us, and I don't know, how Marcus and I were talking, I don't know if depend is the right word here, but trials lead us to depend on God's goodness, or maybe they are to help us to become aware of God's goodness, because it's the exact opposite of what wants to well up from deep within our fleshly desires. God is good. He is unchangeable. And his word that he said, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. And I think he's talking, he's talking about the physical creation, but he's also, I think the main point he wants to make is that our spiritual renewal, our spiritual birth has been brought forth by Jesus Christ. The word of truth points to the revelation of God. And maybe it includes his written word, but it is for sure pointing to Jesus and so everything, kind of hopefully, can we bring the, a full circle that the trials, if we step back and we see the bigger picture, or trust God that there is a bigger picture, because, why? He's good, he never changes, and he is our salvation. And in our salvation, we find our identity, and we find a place to belong. And out of that flows this heart of worship that is probably the best antidote to our feeling sorry for ourselves for hard times, for trials. It's the, it's the best antidote for facing temptation. It's to come to a place where we worship. Bring yourself around to a place of worship. And so the whole book of James then <coughs> is kind of this What do these things look like? These trials, these tests, these temptations. How do we respond? How should we respond? Let me just say this yet. James talks about all these things that we should do. 
should do this, should do that, and we're going to screw it up every time. Not every time, but we will fail. And that's why he talks in, later on in chapter 4, he says, but God gives grace. God gives us grace. Always we need grace. The goodness of God, his unchangeableness, and then his salvation that, we bring, that he brings to us. We belong to him, and when we take our eyes off of ourselves and off of our trials and sufferings, we place them on Jesus. It leads us to a place of worship. And so I hope that's where we can end up. So there's a dramatic difference between knowing about Jesus, because when I just know about Jesus, I'm going to focus, my eyes are going to be on my trials. But when I know Jesus, truly know Jesus, it takes my eyes off of my trials to a place of worship. So, read the book of James. It's so good. It's so full of practical truths, but deep inner truths as well. They should cause us to reflect on our own hearts. If we don't reflect on our own hearts in it, then we're probably missing it. So read it. Allow God to speak to your inner heart. Thanks for being here. Um, I invite you to stand. We're not going to have a closing song this morning. So just stand with me. We'll close in prayer. God, this morning... Your word, is, your word is so packed full of truth, of application, of things that we can use. And we could talk on and on and on and on about the beauty of it. But would you take this morning, take these verses from the first part of James, help us to just ponder on them, to think about them, and show us what's going on in our own hearts this morning. So that when we live our lives our lives would reflect what we say we believe. That it wouldn't just be giving lip service to you because the world sees right through hypocrisy. Our children see right through our hypocrisy. So help us just be able to live real before you and before each other. Thank you that you are worthy of our worship. God, we screw up over and over and over again. We know it, you know it, we all know it about each other and about ourselves. Thank you for your grace, the the salvation that you give us and the grace that you pour out in our lives every day. We need it so much. Bless this church, bless this body as we leave here today. Those that aren't here, I pray that um, all of us could be encouraged going into this week and our lives would reflect whose we are. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, you're dismissed.